to just pay homage to my teachers, my many teachers, homage to the native peoples of the Miwok, Patlin, and Nishanan tribes. We are occupying their land and we're learning from them still how to care for this land. And I want to pay homage to all of the marginalized peoples all over the world, but especially in our country. Um, may we offer um, refuge and reparations and um, equity in their lives. So the title of my talk is We Are Made to Be Undone. We Practice to Be Unbound. And actually, a couple of mornings ago, I woke up, looked at my iPhone, and I received, I saw a text message from a colleague of mine saying that I'm in the hospital and I'm having emergency brain surgery this morning. Uh, I mean, I just was shaken up. My mind was swirling around. I didn't have any sense of how I could face into this unfathomable moment in her life. Um, and this is someone who's been struggling with cancer for a while, so I knew this must be serious. Um, and in the text it said, it will take me three or four weeks for my mind to be able to speak. But she then texts, don't know about the next part, but it would be lovely to have a moment to sit with you again. I, I took that in, a moment to sit with you again. And even with all of the turmoil and the feelings of fear and, and worry and um, unfathomableness of what was happening, I felt my heart open and I could relax a little bit. I could light my candles for her. I could call her son. And I knew in my heart that we were connected. But this isn't just my experience. Many people are struggling with cancer here in our Sangha, in parts of the world, in our neighborhood. Um, and last week we had a Sajiki ceremony where we honored people in our lives who have died during this past two years. And I've heard it said that the most difficult kind of suffering for human beings is to be separated from those that we love. And someone else said, on some level, throughout our lives, we know that we're going to die. And yet, we still love. We are all courageous people because the foundation of our relationships is love. And during this time, I recalled a sentence in Zenju Earthland Manual's book, The Deepest Peace, where she said, we are made to be undone. And this sentence resonated with me deeply in this moment. And I can recall other significant times in my life where the ground under me fell apart. The way I thought my life was to go broke up. Um, but also something else cracked open. And maybe all of us know, I think we all know, 
what it's like to have something in our lives undone. We are made to be undone. Dogen says, we practice where we fall down. And Pima Chodron's famous book is titled, When Things Fall Apart. And right now, if we open our lens really wide, we can't help but see all the places in the world that are being undone. The war in Ukraine, the nuclear war threats, Afghan people who are trying to escape now, but there's no American embassy to seek asylum anymore, extreme weather conditions, and now, after tomorrow, it could be that the strength of our democracy could fall apart. But this, we are made to be undone, is not the end of the story. Life pours in. Myriad things greet us. No matter what is happening in our situation, still, Shi Shuang said, going out the gate, immediately there's grass. Diane said, Diane said, I'd say, even not going out the gate, still the grass is boundless. Life pours in. We continue to step into life as long as we are breathing. I think Zenju is saying, this is how awakening works, to be undone. It's part of being human that this is meant to happen. Maybe once, but maybe lots of times, we may be undone. But something cracks open too. (laughs) This is the nature of the way-seeking mind talks that so many people give here. Because even when something is undone, Something deeper moves through us and opens doors to liberation. This is bodhicitta, the mind that's aimed at awakening with wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. But how we live through these moments of being cracked open is the big question. I was looking back on my life and I see that this breaking up of self-identities has happened many, many times. But I'm remembering um, when I first came out here, I moved to California, I think it's been like 16 years ago now, from the Chicago area. And I had intentionally let go of my private practice as a therapist built up over many years. I resigned from my professorship at a well-known graduate school in psychology. This letting go was chosen. But I also carried a dream of being a professor at a different kind of graduate school where spirituality and transformation were at the core of the work as a therapist. So when I was offered a faculty position out here at the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, I thought my dream was coming true. I taught there for three years. And during this time, I became increasingly disillusioned with the direction of the school towards greater conservatism. There were many other factors, but I kept working hard and I was trying hard to turn away from this isn't a good fit and a deep disappointment. But one day during my schedule, I was feeling so distressed. I suddenly thought, I've got to get out of here. And somehow I managed to walk out of the school and I walked and I walked and I walked and felt broken inside and lost. 
And the uncanny thing was, at that very moment, when I was in such distress, my husband called me out of the blue. And often it takes the presence of another human being to help us face what we don't want to face. And in this turning, something greater begins to move our lives forward in unknown ways. But the truth of this being undone really is not just the situation. I mean, sometimes we think that our suffering is our situation, but actually it's more complex than that. My own patterning is at work contributing to the situational patterning, patterning. And in this moment, during that epic walk, the constraint of my pattern broke open. I discovered parts of myself that were exiled, split off, not able to be a part of my full aliveness, and my study of Zen intensified. And back then I realized I didn't really understand the root of suffering. The belief that there is such a thing as a fixed self, holding on tight to something I hold dear, and turning away from anything painful or threatening. And that if we don't work with these roots of suffering, we will continue to suffer. And this became the core of my practice, how we become free, unbound from our fears of impermanence and our fear that our own suffering is too much to experience directly. Practicing with these roots of suffering is what opens us to the experience of the fullness of life. Because you see, by holding on or turning away, we're working against the natural flow of life. Our wholeness involves everything, and we can be aligned with the natural flow of life if we don't hold on or turn away or think that this is the self that will always be. And this is actually how we cause our own suffering. But I guess I want to ask the question now, how do we even recognize when we're holding on or turning away or being caught in a fixed sense of self? And I wanted to share a dream. A friend of mine, Carol, she gave me permission to share this. In her dream, she is sitting inside a car that just crashed into a wall. The car is smoking and all the doors are bent open. She knew she had to get out of the car. But then what? In her dream, she leapt out of the car and fell into a ditch on the side of the road. But she didn't fall into the void, into some further self-harm. She fell into the earth body. Laying there in the earth, she could let go. How do we recognize our own holding on or turning away? How can we let go? But this letting go is actually a basic understanding of our practice of Zazen. When we sit, we let go of trying to make anything happen. We get let go of trying to get somewhere. And it is this letting go that awakens us. So we can practice in our Zazen letting go 
even when we're holding on, or even when we're turning away. Because this happens just sitting on our cushion, just breathing in and out. We let go when our whole body bows. This is when our mind is open and concentrated and not holding on to an object. So so I began to sense that we can let go under our karma, under our patterns and defenses, our unconscious patterns that might be fueled by greed or feeling unlovable or trying to stay in control. Um, Because once we let go and get underneath our karma, then we're free to actually see what's happening. Uh, Shoto Harada says, abiding nowhere, awakened mind rises. Without Zazen, we can only talk about letting go of all of our attachments. But sitting Zazen, abiding nowhere, awakened mind arises and we connect with the actual direct energy of the moment, which interacts with our conditioned life. Uh, this Harada, he talks about uh, the, breath, the breath practice in a different way. Rather than just noticing our breath coming in and out, we understand that each inhale breath is a new birth. And so this new birth of the inhale creates energy. And if we can actually allow this energy of our inhale and our exhale to move out, then it will begin to reveal what we need to see moment to moment in our sitting. But um, I want to pause for a moment because it's really important that we remember that the way our mind works is that we automatically create dualisms, most often outside of our conscious awareness, and we become caught in one-sidedness. This truth about our conditioned mind is present in our zazen practice, even in the letting go. When caught in one-sidedness, we become unsteady, easily buffeted about by the changes around us, in our insecurities um, take over. So I have a calligraphy in my, uh, my meditation room, and the calligra- calligraphy says, we can only see one side of the moon. Actually, it's kind of a joke, because when you think about it, the moon doesn't have any sides. <laughs> the moon is whole. The moon is rich and full. And um, it's full of many distinctions. But our conditioned mind wants to sort of flatten everything out, wants us to only see this one half of the moon as if it is just this half of the moon. And um, we don't even think about even the dark side of the moon. But still, this is something that we have to become aware of, this tendency to be one-sided in what we see. And so um, I found it helpful to study the eight worldly dharmas and to be alert for how they're functioning in my life. And maybe you already know these eight worldly dharmas, 
but I've come to appreciate that if we can begin to uh, understand how these worldly dharmas work, that when they arise in our meditation, uh, we can work with the dynamic of them and free ourselves from their power. So these eight worldly dharmas are pleasure versus pain, anonymity versus fame, loss and gain, and shame and validation. And these are the eight worldly dharmas that we tend to unconsciously get caught up in. And on top of that, even as we're caught up in these worldly dharmas, this tendency to hold on or turn away is also operating. So there's a kind of an amazing dynamic in our consciousness that I think our sitting zazen will start to reveal to us and we can work with this in such a way that we're freed from it. We become unbound by these worldly dharmas. So, I mean, we've talked about this many times, pleasure and pain. Um, Pleasure feeds on desire. We enjoy something that's happening in our life and often we wish we could hold on to it. We wish we could like put it in a bottle and have it there all the time. Um, But sometimes people are actually afraid to feel pleasure or to feel really good because inherent in all of this is the fear of it ending, of it being impermanent. And so some people don't even want to take the risk of being that happy about something or that see that beautiful flower in its elegance or dance. Um, And some people want to hold on to this pleasure and get tight and constricted around it out of this fear of the other side, which is pain. And, And the pain of the pleasure ending but also just pain of any kind of suffering that's happening in your life. Um, I've worked with people who who have had trauma in their lives, for example, and they talk really, and often somebody will talk really fast to kind of get the story out as fast as they can. And if we slow down, the person can actually feel some of the experience they're describing, the pain they're going through, they actually feel better. Whereas before, talking really fast is a kind of avoidance, a way to try to get away because it's so scary to feel our own suffering, so scary that it might not ever end or that we can't handle it. Um, So I don't know if I've shared this story before, but I was kind of struck reading this section of Freud when he described having this beautiful rose garden And there was a certain point in the summer where the roses were in full bloom and he invited his colleagues to come to see his beautiful rose garden. And the colleagues came and they were walking through all these flowers and they were intensely talking to each other about the latest theory in psychoanalytic psychology. And then they went home. And so Freud was really perplexed, like why, what was happening? How come they were doing that? And his conclusion was, that this was a defense mechanism. They were afraid to let themselves feel the beauty of the roses because they knew that the next day the flowers will have faded and it would be gone. 
And so that was a very um, poignant example, I guess, of this worldly dharma of pleasure versus pain. You know, afraid um, of something ending, afraid that something's impermanent. And yet that fear is what makes it, gets in the way of being fully alive in that moment. Um, And on the other side, um, fear of pain not ending is the other side of it. So uh, John Kabat-Zinn is famous for bringing mindfulness practices for people who have chronic pain. And I actually saw a video about this where teaching mindfulness practices, the people who were practicing realized that out of their fear, the mind was afraid that the pain would never end, that the mind itself sustained the pain. And once they started practicing mindfulness, they began to notice that there were moments where there was no pain because they were just in the moment of paying attention to what's happening now. And you see on this video, the the transformation in, in the people who were doing this practice, they came alive, you know, because energy was released in, you know, the realization that there's more than the pain. And so you can kind of get this feeling now of if we can move back and forth, if we can face what we're so afraid of, if we can uh, recognize what impermanence gives us, what kind of gift is actually here, that then we're released from the hold of these dharmas and we can be fully open into the present. Another worldly dharma is anonymity and fame. And anonymity is really the fear that we won't be known, (laughs) that we won't be recognized for who we are that maybe nobody will even notice us being anonymous. And out of that fear, then, many people are driven to, on the other side, seek fame. They want to do something really big and really important to make sure they're seen and not anonymous anymore. But you can sort of see that this dynamic back and forth between fear of anonymity and driven to fame that um, we're left kind of vulnerable uh, to the outcome of something. We're left thinking that we're only defined by our accomplishments. And often that drivenness for fame um, gets in the way of, you know, really caring for other people because that's all that matters. Um, So instead of, if you turn towards the fear of anonymity, then you can actually, in your practice, come to know yourself as Buddha nature and to come in contact with yourself as, as this open being that's not a small self. And it releases you from this fear that kind of generates this back and forth between anonymity and fame. And um, I had this incredible experience where And lately, I've been worried that I've told these stories before, but um, I was at Green Gulch Farm, and I hadn't been there in a long time, and there were two priests there that in the past I had felt really connected to. And I got there, and I saw them, and they weren't 
recognizing me. And I was really, I could feel feeling upset, like they're not recognizing me. And then all of a sudden in my zazen, the word anonymity came up. And I realized, oh, I'm afraid of being anonymous. And then that let go, and it was like, well, it's okay. It's okay to be anonymous. And everything released, and I felt fine. And then the next day, I walked into Cloud Hall, the first priest, oh, you're here. And then I started walking into the garden, and the other priest was over there doing something. She turned around, and she waved, hi. And it was like, what is this? Like, I just let go of anonymity, and then all of a sudden, I was seen. You know, how did that happen? You know, and I kind of, my thought about that is, is that when I was stuck in anonymity, I was kind of fear of anonymity. I was closed down. I wasn't, there wasn't an open channel for connection. And once it was okay, you know, then everything released and, and, and we're open. And maybe this is kind of how it works. Like if we see that we're holding on to something and then we recognize it and we can let go. Or if we see we're turning away and we can turn towards these release the holds of our karmic patterns and we're free to be in the moment and connect. Uh, the, the other um, worldly dharma is loss and gain. And I know we've talked a lot recently about gaining mind and like we don't want to set goals and get off into the future and strive to reach a certain goal. And because that, again, brings us away from being completely open in the present. And also, once we get into gaining mind, it's always the opposite is the fear that, that we'll lose something, that, that we want, what we want won't happen. And... Um, you can begin to feel the holding on on both sides, holding on to the fear, I don't want to lose anything, or holding on to the need to accomplish or to complete one's goal. And both of them take us out of the moment. Um, So again, if we remember that in our zazen, we're abiding nowhere, an awakened mind arises. An awakened mind can generate a kind of awareness of how we get caught in these worldly dharmas. So, so one of the messages is we don't want to block whatever's arising because the awakened mind is giving us what needs to happen next. And the last worldly dharma is shame and validation. And this is a little more tender to talk about. I, I have shame in my life, and many people do, because shame is this somehow belief that there, we have something flawed in us, that no one could love me just as I am. But without going into understanding your shame, but the shame is sort of leading you And it's very physical, because when we feel shame, we hold our breath, we look down, we become immobile. And even studies have shown that maybe shame is universal, because it's almost in every culture. But out of shame, we want to hide ourselves. We want to protect. 
And there's a there's sort of a constriction of self-awareness. And then we need to turn outside for someone to validate that we're really okay. And so we become sort of wobbly because we're kind of dependent on this. And I don't know if many of you know Robert Bly, who uh, in my generation was an internationally known poet and leader of the men's liberation movement. And I, I heard from somebody actually that all these little poets would meet at night to read their poetry because they all felt so vulnerable. They didn't want anybody to see them. Um, but apparently Robert Bly would read his poems and then people began to notice that when he would get to the end of his poetry, his poem, his voice would become very soft and kind of broken up. And so they asked him about it. And he thought about it for a while and he said, you know, that's my shame body. He said that, you know, at the moment of, of completing my, you know, authentic revelation or exposure of something that I had written, I suddenly felt very vulnerable and ashamed. Um, so it's, it's about allowing ourselves to be compassionate towards the shame when it arises, to notice again that if we don't work with our shame, then we move on the side of the need for validation from outside. And that's making it much harder to stay connected to the deep gift of our practice, which is connection to our Buddha nature. And that Buddha nature is not a small self. You know, the Buddha said that the mind that awakened in him is a mind that awakens in all of us. There's one mind that we're all participating in. And once we can let go of of this small self, this need for validation and get connected to our Buddha nature, then we can be fully present to bring compassion and wisdom to the world. So, um, behind every duality, the living mind is present. We are born in each moment. And when we live free of these um, karmic patterns that hold us back, uh, everything flows, flows from one moment to the next. We can move freely in any circumstance, unbounded, without clinging to our small selves. To have the state of mind, to accept and receive whatever comes along is the meaning of Mahaprajna Paramita. So we're blessed, all of us, that we have this practice of Zazen and that we're sharing it together, that we are open to the abiding nowhere way of being so that awakened mind can begin to transform all of us. So... um, from being undone to becoming unbound. And just to end with a part of a koan called the constant principle. The round pearl has no edges. The great raw gem is never polished. What is esteemed by people of the way is having no edges. The free spirit resting on nothing, unique, and alive.
Thank you for listening. So, I welcome any thoughts, um, questions, uh, and any thoughts about our minds being undone as well as unbound. Thanks. Thank you, Dorothy. I have an observation and a question. Oh. The observation is uh, um, um, prompted by um, sitting with Reb on the weekend. Oh. And as he often does, he talked about um, uh, confession and repentance, the pure and simple color of true practice. Mm. Um, and he presented it in such a way that uh, uh, it sort of opened up to me as as a Dharma gate mm. uh, of because in confessing um, that opens the possibility for uh, so confession um, facilitates recognition, um, articulation, um, and. It's like a Dharma gate to honoring whatever the confession is about. And um, and opening to the other possibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. It's another the, kind of turning to see or to recognize, you know, some way that we're caught or... Um, the confession requires yeah. recognition yeah. Uh, and acknowledgement, uh, turning yeah. towards, yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to have something to confess and to uh, and to realize, uh, you know, to be sorry, to regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is part of confession, and that facilitates uh, opening to another direction. Mm-hmm. The question is. Um, about your turn of phrase, which I didn't quite understand, of, uh, I forget exactly how you put it, but um, working beneath the karma. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember saying that? Yes, I yeah. do. Could you, I, I didn't quite, I don't think I okay. understood that. Uh, okay, well, it's, I guess it's sort of my my way of understanding or something, because uh, you know, a lot of times if we become aware of something, for example, that we're holding on to really tight, if we tell ourselves, let go, often for me, I hold on tighter. Um, because something is needs attention there, but also it's really whether I let go or not is not sort of up to me, kind of. It's not something I have to make happen. Um, yet, we need to let go. You know, my, my friend's dream, she fell into the earth and could let go. You know, in order to change and be transformed, we, we can't control. So, but our practice itself is letting go. You know, sitting and breathing and not having a goal. You know, letting go of, uh, you know, just sitting and being aware. That is the letting go that then comes and opens us to be able to see how I'm holding on and what that's about or what I don't want to see. 
Otherwise, we're just caught in those dualities and they're partly unconscious. So that's what I was trying to say, that, that our practice life is what we need in order to transform these karmic patterns. That makes sense. Yeah. I was interested in the story about Freud and his rose garden. Yeah. And uh, uh, I hadn't heard that story before. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Yeah. No, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking, if I... And this is this is this is what we can do, right? You can imagine that you're Freud, and you can imagine you're Freud in the in the rose garden, but but you're not Freud, you're you. Mm-hmm. And and you know, if I was in the rose garden and I'd invited some people over to see my rose garden, which I cared about and which I thought was so lovely and was was so encouraging and beautiful, and then you know they all talked about you know the last football game or, you know, whenever, whatever they're preoccupied with. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I would be disappointed strictly because um, they weren't, they didn't appreciate what I wanted to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, nice. I wanted to offer the rose garden and, yeah. and, and the now of the rose garden. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that Freud had to actually theorize then about something like the fear of the roses dissipating, oh, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, maybe that was, yeah. <laughs> it seems like he was on the same length, wa- wavelength of oh. all the people actually, you know, mm-hmm. theorizing about things somehow, rather than, you know, thinking like, yeah, here's some beautiful roses, <laughs> people, let's look at the beautiful roses and let's, let's uh, count their petals or... <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, describe their colors or the, yeah. their smells, uh, you know, uh, the now of the roses. So uh, I just found it interesting that, you know, he, okay. had, he had to make a theory up about I it. I see. Well, but isn't that what the Dharma says? Everything is impermanent. And true. So, true. It, so you could think of it, maybe it is a theory, but maybe it's part of seeing something that, you know, is actually hard for us to see, uh, and and that he he maybe appreciated that or um, uh, so yeah I mean that's how I heard it anyway mm. yeah uh-huh. thank you mm-hmm. and to be generous to Freud we could say oh he wasn't use the use the mic. <laughs> So to be generous to Freud, we could, we could, I could say, I could think, oh, he wasn't pissed off at them. <laughs> he, uh-huh. yeah. he, he was just observing this strange thing, yeah. what seemed to him strange behavior, mm-hmm. and coming to a conclusion because he was a psychologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But maybe he was totally out of touch with his own feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Not knowing. Yes. But I don't know, do other people have those moments where it's almost a little scary to fully enjoy? Or, um, 
you know, just let go into the moment of delight or, uh, I don't know, I just feel... I, I've experienced yeah. that. Yeah. It's a little bit scary in a way, you know, to let go in that way, knowing at the same time that, you know, tomorrow, you know, I could lose my job or, you know, something else difficult could happen. And how do we be open in that amount to flow, you know, in the the two sides of the um, duality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Um, thank you. For, thank you for the talk. Uh, do you um, do you have any thoughts about like renunciation, which is a thing I for a long time before I started got interested in Zen, I was doing like Vedanta type stuff and they talk I don't know if there's an equivalent thing in Zen where they talk a lot about renunciation and austerity and things like that and it's a way of I guess trying to Mm -hmm. break yourself of all the clinging Mm -hmm. and um, you know I guess you know the Catholic monks maybe would mortify the flesh things like that Um, and I, I can think of something as simple as trying to break myself of caffeine, you know, or something where I can go a few days and stop doing that. And then, and then I'm in a moment of weakness, I'll have a cup of coffee and I fall back into the chasm of, you know, <laughs> yeah. clinging and, and just like, how does that, what do you, what are your thoughts on renunciation as part of, is that a, an essential part of letting go of the clinging and the, the worldly I, desires, I or mean, is that a trap? <laughs> I, I don't have an expert opinion about that or a knowledge about that, but I, I think people often talk about Soto Zen as soft Zen. I mean, in the sense that we're not forcing something um, as much as inviting. And we, we talk about relinquishing uh, where we let go of, of something intentionally. Um, you know, like like relinquish something that you know we value a lot, and then that becomes part of our practice. Uh, but it's all part of making an intention, I guess, and within the context of not forcing us to be different. But Jim might have something to say about that. But that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then I guess well, it would be my opinion that that maybe over time is more successful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Does anybody on Zoom have any thoughts? Yeah, Oscar? Well, I like, I like what you said about relinquishing instead of renouncing. Huh. But um, and um, I feel uh, there's some uh, strength in the concept, the term uh, renouncing. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like I'm renouncing, um, I'm, I, I'm trying. Like in Zazen, I always have the choice. I mean, the choice is always <laughs> being offered to me to go off into a story mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And the stories are kind of attractive, you know, like, well, I can always, you know, stop 
stop telling the story later, but right now I, I'd like to tell the story. <laughs> and um, and it's sort of an effort of will to to relinquish. Oh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so um, so that's the connotation, I guess. I I've, I've not, I haven't thought about this, but that's uh, uh, it's that effort of will. Relinquishing is a little more like, oh, okay, I'll let that go. But renouncing is, no, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. So that's that's what came to my mind uh, with your question, Justin. More of a willful willful act. Thank you, Dorley, um, for your talk. And I guess I was just thinking about that myself. Um, uh, you know, I was, I took a lot of time with the precepts recently yeah. and, and I think something that I really, <clears throat> I, I appreciated from the beginning with them, especially as I, you know, started reading, like being upright and getting a sense of, you know, what this approach is, is, you know, it's, it's like you're talking about the, um, uh, the eight, eight worldly dharmas. Thank mm-hmm. you. And, you know, it's, there's, the, you know, there's like finding someone who tells you like, oh, we figured this all out and this is good and this is bad and just do it the way I tell you to until they, you know, till you break and, and mm-hmm. you get it. And that's, I, I guess that's renunciation in a way uh, mm-hmm. or one form of it. Mm-hmm. But I find what's really useful with our practice is that, um, you can't just take someone else's word for it. You got to go out and and figure it out. You know, you gotta, you have to experience like the eight worldly dharmas over and over and over right, again right. until you and 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 to bring to them a kind of logic, but the kind of logic that we get in our practice. You know, just this kind of sense of kind of running out of road and realizing that you know, these extremes, I'm just bouncing between them. And that it's not so much about morality or trying to break yourself of something I feel is just coming to see that logic, that this is the reality and you're fighting against it. And that's why you're you're not happy all the time, mm-hmm. is kind of how I feel about it. So mm-hmm. that just kind of came to me, so I wanted to share. Yeah, thank you. Thank, so thank you. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's like you come to see it. Uh-huh. And then something shifts. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds like we're at a completion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for being here and um... Oh, yes, Barry. Sorry, I forgot I was going to ask this question. Oh. Um, awesome talk, as usual. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, when you were teaching at the integ- integrative, the, the new oh, graduate program yes. here, when you said um, you were uncomfortable with their conservatism, I was curious, did you mean like politically or the way they approached psychology? I'm curious. Oh, well, the dynamic with I mean, that. it's sort of a long, complex thing, and I don't know how that how it is now. So this was, you know, I don't remember now how many years now since I've been there, but um, 
you know, it was a situation where it was a very experimental school for a long time, but they had made a decision to try to, you know, get APA accreditation, American Psychological Association accreditation. And I came from an APA accredited school, so that was partly why I think they hired me, actually, because they wanted to change how they taught to fit their criteria. And that's what became oppressive for me. It wasn't um, among many other dimensions of what was happening and my own issues. I mean, I want to not say it's about them, but there were my own issues there too, you know, in terms of uh, pushing up and speaking my mind about all of that. So, but yeah, they were trying to now become an accredited APA school, and that meant making a lot of changes in, in even how they understand how people learn. Um, so, was no longer a good fit for me. Thanks so much. I think Barbara has a. Oh, hi, Barbara. Good you're on. You're on mute, Barbara. Oh, no, I'm I'm unmuted. I think. Yes, you are. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for your talk. Like always, many pearls of wisdom, and I don't have any immediate comments. I just want to thank you for your talk and. I will go back and listen to this again and again and um, um, find ways of integrating it into my practice. So thank you, Dorley. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Barbara. Here we all are. Oh, okay. Uh -huh.